today we have a truly amazing interview for you, one that will definitely activate your glutamate receptors. And I'm Ivan Baxter. Today's guest is Simon Gilroy from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. We'll discuss one of his recent and certainly most celebrated papers, talk about plant, air quotes, neurobiology, plants in space, and bust the myth that everyone in plant science is motivated by a desire to feed the world. And as a special bonus, Simon laughs a lot, and it's a very special laugh. So with that, let's get to the episode. Welcome, everybody. Today's guest is, and I wish I had a drum set so that I could go, Simon Gilroy. As you'll hear, Simon is originally from the UK, and he did his PhD in plant biochemistry with the famous Anthony Trawavas at Edinburgh in 1987. After a couple of postdoc fellowships, he joined the faculty at Penn State, and in 2007, he moved to the University of Wisconsin-Madison where he has a very active and apparently very gregarious lab based on his Facebook page. He teaches a lot. He organizes the fantastic Midwest Plant Cell Biology Meeting and is very active in the plant biology community. Simon has been at the leading edge of research in my field, plant mechanobiology, even starting in his PhD work. He's been trying to understand how calcium signaling in plants works and how it helps transduce important signals like gravity, wounding, and mechanical force. So welcome to the Taproot, Simon. Well, thank you. It's fantastic to have you here, Simon. Today's paper is Toyota et al. in Science 2018, and the title is Glutamate Triggers Long-Distance Calcium-Based Plant Defense Signaling. And it really got just a tremendous amount of press. In prepping for this, I listened to uh, Simon on Science Friday. He got written up in the New York Times. You may have heard of this paper before, even if you were not a hardcore mechanobiology calcium transporter signaling person. So, Simon, do you want to give us a, a quick summary of this paper? Yeah. So we've been interested in how plants communicate within the plant body. And so that's the big theme of what the paper was addressing. There were two bits to it. One bit we were really hoping that we would see and kind of thought that it was going to be there, which is if you wound a plant, how does it send signals throughout the plant? So we use some imaging technology to be able to see that information as a wave of calcium move through the plant. And that was pretty cool. That was awesome. There's an unexpected bit of it as well, which is in trying to work out the mechanism behind that. We've sort of revealed a role for the amino acid glutamate as a signal for that long-distance information system, which is super unexpected. Awesome. If you have not seen a Simon Gilroy talk, it is always a pleasure because he always has the coolest movies of signaling in plants. So Simon came and gave a seminar here. He was our student-invited speaker, I think, last year. Yeah. And the ooing and the aahing, when the, you damage the plant leaf and there's this big visible calcium signal. And I think what's partly what's so compelling about it is you can see it at the whole plant scale, right? So everybody's seen a calcium wave somewhere in a pollen tube or some kind of a nerve cell or something. But 
seeing that on the scale of a whole plant leaf was just really compelling. Did you have to develop some technology to make that possible? Or why weren't we seeing this before? It's a combination of a lot of technologies and ideas coming together. So we didn't develop the imaging approach. We just sort of used it. There's a bunch of labs who are just doing like that unbelievably awesome protein engineering stuff where they are taking green fluorescent protein and then engineering the structure of the peptide in order to be able to change its fluorescence in response to a whole bunch of different parameters. So fortunately, in the medical world, calcium is a big deal. And so there's lots of labs who are developing these awesome tools for imaging calcium, and they just sort of come of age. We've had very good tools for a good few years to make these kind of measurements, but they've not been the kind that you could use with the sort of the low magnification, which would let you see the whole plant. So we've been able to look at cells and get lots of cellular resolution. But this family of new imaging tools just became available, I would guess, five or six years ago. And so that just opened up the floodgates for being able to make these kinds of measurements. So are you just using a dissecting scope that you've fitted with confocal imaging? Or I guess it's probably not even confocal, huh? No, it's just a regular epifluorescence microscope. The absolutely awesome thing now is up until fairly recently, I think to be able to make the measurements, these kinds of calcium imaging measurements and the, the in vivo dynamics of what's going on, that was very technically demanding. And you had to have some really high-end equipment and you had to really know what you were doing. And now, right. if you've got a fluorescence microscope and you have plants expressing the GFP, if you can image green fluorescent protein with whatever technology you have, you can make these kinds of measurements. Is this the kind of thing that you always imagined you wanted to do, this kind of imaging? Or was it the kind of thing you never would have guessed was possible when you started in the late 90s? The answer is yes to both of those. When I was doing my PhD with Tony Taravis, this is the kind of things that we knew plants had to be doing. You know, like in your heart of heart, you, like if you're a plant biologist who works on signaling, you know that plants are super dynamic and this kind of stuff has got to be in there somewhere. But the technology just didn't exist and over the course of, you know, like two decades, technology moves on and finally we've caught up with those ideas. So once we got the, those movies of wound waves moving throughout the plant, first person I sent them to was Tony Taravis. And I just said, here you go. I emailed him, but without the movie. And I said, I think I got something that you're going to be super interested in. And he emails me back and he goes, have you imaged the calcium waves now? Oh. <laughs> and so then I sent him the movies. It was absolutely fantastic. I want to know what it felt like to be such a science celebrity when that paper came out. Like, oh, that was just so weird. Because <laughs> I've known you for a while, Simon, and you always felt like sort of somebody I could relate to and like a scientist who was exciting and was doing stuff that I understood. I felt like your peer, but now you are like a science celebrity. It's so cool. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> Oh, I am, I am still the humble person that I was before. <laughs> it's very weird, very weird. Because, you know, we, with that, the, the work which is in that science paper is literally five years of research. And the postdoc, who is now a, a professor in Saitama University, Masasugu Toyota, just accumulated this stuff over a really long period of time. And we got closer each year to getting the story, but there was always this feeling that, that we hadn't quite got to describe what was going on. 
So we'd presented that story in its various forms over the course of the years to in a lot of different conferences, a lot of different talks and things like that. And it was clear that the research community liked it and, you know, the movies are very engaging and that kind of stuff. And so, we, But it was very unexpected how the whole, like, just the popular science thing took off. And for that, I totally have to give a shout out to Eric, Eric Hamilton. Really? My graduate student, Eric Hamilton. Yeah. Fantastic. Our communications guy. This is the way it worked. We had the story, got it through science, and knew it was going to be published. So I contact Eric, and Eric writes a like a press release, and that goes to a site that only journalists have access to before the paper is published. So there's an embargo on releasing data and the paper and all that kind of stuff. And that started the ball rolling. And then it got bigger and bigger. And on the the day before the paper was released, I was like on the phone doing interviews constantly. And it was very, very weird. I mean, it was cool. I Don't get me wrong. It was absolutely awesome. It was just very unexpected how much it took off. So I have a question for you about glutamate which is, of course, a neurotransmitter as well as amino acid. Where do you think plants are storing this, right? I mean, there has to be a lot of it if it's being held somewhere in order to serve as signaling molecules for the glutamate receptors. Yeah, this is kind of where we're at, I think. We have pretty good evidence that glutamate is sitting inside plant cells and in response to wounding, it goes into the cell wall and that is the trigger, the molecular pattern that tells the plant that the cell is damaged. Internal concentrations, just like the ambient concentrations of glutamate, probably in the many millimolars range. That's the measurements which have been made. In the cytoplasm or in the vacuole? In the cytoplasm, yeah. Because it's kind of tricky to know how do you make those measurements. How do you get at the ambient glutamate concentration in the cytosols? But So our model is that glutamate kind of leaks from the damaged cell, mm-hmm. whatever leaks me. I like the simple one at the moment, which is that at the wound site, you've just broken open a source of glutamate, and the glutamate leaks out of the damaged cells and then triggers the intact cells around to just freak out. That's literally the model we're trying to test at the moment, because we don't know whether that's true. Is that how it happens in animal cells? No, in animal cells, it's a very much more regulated... So if you think of a synapse, two nerve cells that are going to talk to each other, one nerve cell has vesicles packed with glutamate and it just in a very regulated and controlled way dumps that glutamate into the synaptic cleft and that triggers the next cell. That could be what's going on inside plants. We just Yeah, yeah there could be exocytosis yeah. in response to I don't know, membrane tension or something, yeah. huh? Yeah. And then then it becomes very interesting because the unexpected thing is that we have glutamate as a sort of an extracellular signal, which looks to be triggering waves of calcium through the plant. That's kind of what we, we think is going on. And that kind of looks like how the animal nervous system works. Right. And some of the molecular players might be the same. So the glutamate receptors in plants look like the glutamate receptors in animals. So it's a, I think it's just one of those awesome pieces of biology where apparently biology worked out how to do something and really doesn't have to improve on it. It's got the machinery there. And so it's used by lots of different cells, lots of different animals, lots of different plants. So you think the Society for Plant Neurobiology is going to see a resurgence now? <laughs> I I have my standard disclaimer, Uh plants do not have nerves. But they have nerve-like systems? What would you say? 
they might have a nerve-like system, but a nerve is a very clear anatomical thing in an animal, and you can totally tell what a nerve is. So plants don't have that. But I think all plant biologists, we all know that plants sensing their environment and have to integrate that across the plant body. That's intrinsic to just being a plant. That's what makes them so awesome. And so they have to have a system that does the same kind of thing as a mammalian nervous system, but it's not the mammalian nervous system. And again, that's the awesome thing of being a plant, that you're different, but you have the same challenges in the environment. So the answer is no, they don't have a neurosis. But they have an analogous system, right? They don't They do not have a... They don't... They do not have a nervous system. They do not have a brain. If you define a brain as the big gobby thing on top of our heads. (laughs) So this is kind of like the sort of, this is the thing that drives a lot of the research that goes on in the lab. You kind of know how animals work because we're animals. Medical science is awesome and we have lots of insight into how we do things. And it's very obvious to us because that's how we operate. And then you look outside and you see a plant growing out like in the soil And the challenges it does and the things it has to do are super similar to what animals have to do. It's going to do some of them in a different way, right? So it doesn't have muscles and all that stuff. But it still has to take in information and process it, but it doesn't have a brain, doesn't have the machinery that we have, but it's doing analogous things. And how on earth do you do that? That is an awesome question to try and ask and answer. And the other thing is the time scale is different, I feel. Except that I think the better we get at doing the measurements the more we're realizing, okay, so plants play out as growth and development as their big way of dealing with the world, which is inherently kind of a slow process because you can't screw it up. Once you've grown in a particular way, you can't like pull that growth back. But once right. we, as we get better at making the measurements, the time frame of all of the regulatory stuff and all of the information processing, I think we really are. It's the millisecond time frame of, uh, that you think that animals work out as well. Mm. I would say that any parent of a young child would say that growth and development can be a very slow process. <laughs> so, you know, if this was a different kind of podcast, the one that always takes the titles from like some funny thing that someone says, the title of this podcast would be the spongy bit on top. But um, I don't think... <laughs> the gobby bit. Gobby, gobby oh, it would be much better if it's yeah. spongy bit on top. That sounds more sciencey. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Simon, this got an, a tremendous amount of interest. You got Science Friday, which I'm, I'm not going to say I'm jealous, but I'm, uh, jealous. I'm jealous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And New York Times. But this is a very basic science question. Why do you think this is able to get so much attention? Is it that you're really good at PR? Is it that it's just the pretty pictures? What's, what's, the, what's the key here? I trying to think of the answer to that question before because it, it was remarkable. We knew that the science world thought it was cool, but it's a sciencey question. So we've shown it to lots of people, but it sort of caught the public imagination. And I think partly because seeing is believing and it's a very accessible thing to be able to see the biology play out in front of you, but that makes it more accessible. But I think it's just that there really is a tremendous interest in everyone about how the world works. And this is just a surprising and kind of interesting, cool insight into how plants operate that people hadn't really thought about before. And then it's laid out in front of you. So, yeah, I think it just sort of hit the nerve of, wow, I would never have thought of that. But that is kind of cool. 
So it's interesting you say that everyone just has this innate curiosity about how the world works because we have, I think, in our culture, a real desire to link what we're doing to outcomes. I noticed even in your Science Friday interview, when you talked about this, you sort of you took it even the next step of like, well, if we can understand this, we can teach plants to respond to the environment better. Like, had a very you managed to. You, you said that there is this like drive, you know, not to say uh, we do this because it's effing cool, right? Like you, we can't just say like, yeah. we just want to know this. Yeah, I did one of those Alan Alda communications workshops up at the medical school a couple years ago where we were practicing our elevator pitch. And all of the people in that room would not let me say, this is interesting because we don't know how plants do this. Like, they are like, why? Why would I care? And I finally I was like, you don't make somebody who's involved in space research or deep sea diving, like, that's obviously interesting. Why can't plants be just obviously interesting and curious? It was really a weird dynamic. So it sounds like you also, Simon, sort of felt obligated to link this to human outcomes, outcomes that benefit human health. So I don't think anyone in my lab does the research because we think that we're going to feed the world. You know, we are driven by the curiosity of how things work. There's two kind of big themes for research. I think there's directed research where the drive to do the research is a question with a very defined outcome and the goal is to move towards a product. That is awesome and there's a balance between that and the role of research in extending knowledge. And I think it's entirely appropriate for the general public to want to have some way of linking into the research. And for some people, it's the product will makes it obvious as to why the research has got to be done. But still, I do think a lot of people just find stuff interesting. I have this, the, my only insight about universities is you can go to anyone who is a professor at a university, and if they can tell you why what they work on is interesting, you can totally find it interesting because they can get across the enthusiasm and the, the questions and why it's interesting. I think it turns out the stuff is just interesting. But yeah, there is this flip side of it, which is that at some point there might be a product. But if your research is designed to get to the product, that's a very different thing from I wonder how this works. And it is sometimes it is the, the venue wants a product. Yeah. Should taxpayers want everything that we're doing on their dime to be leading to a product? Or should they be paying for us to scratch our what does calcium do in plants itch? <laughs> um, you know, if we were all omnipotent and we knew everything, I guess then there'd be no point in doing research, right? But if you knew the outcome of everything, then maybe that whole, like, this should be directed because we have this output that we need. But we don't. And you have no idea. As that big body of knowledge gets bigger and bigger about how the world works, that is the thing that supports like the next round of products. And I don't know what the important questions to get to the, the, the next big thing that is going to double food production is, but I'm pretty certain that the accumulated knowledge that we're building now at some point, some of it's going to come together to support that stuff. But if you don't do all of the big, I wonder how it works stuff now, the next round of stuff is simply just not going to happen. 
I mean, I think there's clearly a push and pull there, right? Because we absolutely need to be just figuring out stuff. It's not that applied research doesn't lack imagination, but it has to be confined within the way we understand things today. And we understand so little about our world in reality. And so we have to be going out into the world and trying to understand things. And maybe we just haven't made that case clear enough, because that's certainly something that I we all agree on. It's really a question of how do we frame that as important and can we make the case that we have to understand this stuff just to understand it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Saying that basic research is important, fundamental for applied research is one thing, but that's just basically saying that in some way or another, we're all working towards application. But is there space to say it's okay to do research on taxpayer money that's just to understand the world, like studying evolution or studying, I don't know, just something that's like there's no application. Mm. Is it okay to study that? Yeah. So I'd have two kind of thoughts on that. One is that no one knows how future applications will work. So every piece of knowledge is important. And if you think that knowledge is a product, which I kind of do, then basic research, which is answering questions about how the world works, is producing an incredibly important product, yes. which is part of improving the human condition. Knowledge is a good thing. The more we understand, the better the world is as far as human beings are concerned. And the knowledge itself is product. So I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I feel like your research is such a great example of how understanding plants helps us as humans understand our place in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Because we can see the ways in which we're like plants. We can see the ways in which we're different than plants. We can see the ways in which they've solved the same problems we have, which is how does my brain know that my what my leg is doing? The, the plant needs to do those same long-distance communication job. It does it in a similar yet different way. I feel like that informs us as like humans. Like the human condition is to understand the natural world. That's part of our jobs as humans. And I may have written that in a broader impact statement one time. <laughs> But then I learned not to do that anymore. Did that did not get funded? <laughs> it did get funded, but I'm pretty sure there was something in the reviewer that was like, don't do that. We need to hear like, like broader impacts are, that's too lofty, too philosophical or something. I can't remember. <laughs> that's a question for you, Simon. Have you, is that, have you ever made that case in a grant proposal? You've always been quite successful in funding your lab, I would uh, say, or reasonably successful. I don't know. The, um, no. <laughs> I mean, I think every grant proposal, you know, if you think about like the classic National Science Foundation broader impact statement, the formula for those is that pretty much every one of them has the first paragraph of that broader impacts is a description of how the science will move our understanding forward. And then it has all of the other stuff, which is sort of expected for how you're going to broaden what your, how your research impacts on the world outside of just answering the science questions. So I think everyone sort of has that bit of like, I I'm going to discover this important stuff and it will move the field forward. Yeah, but I don't think knowledge for knowledge's sake will necessarily be the best broader impacts for an NSF grant. Let me just follow up on that question about your funding. To some extent, you have been funded by NSF and NASA most of the time that I've known you. And the NASA stuff is more applied, although there, I think a lot of what you are doing for them is sort of asking questions about plants and gravity, but they want plants in space. <laughs> have you ever thought of how could I do what I'm interested in and make it in a more applied sense and gone after that kind of funding? 
it's not the kind of science that I think I'm good at. I think that's just so hard. Like to think how, basically, I want to improve a plant. That is a hard thing to do. Plants are pretty awesome. Evolution has equipped them with a pretty amazing set of tools to deal with the world. And the kind of stuff that I'm interested in, much more the questions of how does it work. So never really gone down the road of applied, you know, like crop improvement or something like that. But you are sanding plants into space. Yes. And, what, and what's the purpose of that? <laughs> um, there are two components of that. And the NASA guys are totally, totally like they know that there are two elements of what they're funding. There's the very applied part of it, which is that if you're going to have astronauts who are going to live for a very long time away from the Earth, somehow you've got to feed them and keep them alive. And the question is whether plants can do that role. So there's an absolutely an applied component to it. But if you put a NASA grant proposal in, most of the requests for proposals absolutely require you to be testing a biological hypothesis. So there's a lot of technology and a lot of directed research from NASA, which is build me a better greenhouse in space, that kind of work. But then there's also a huge proportion of what is funded is use spaceflight as a laboratory to understand how biology interacts with the things that you can change, but you can only do it by going to space. So what happens when you get rid of gravity? What happens when you increase the radiation dosage? What happens when weird physical phenomena get screwed up because of the place where you are? And so most of the research that we do in the NASA realm is not improving plants to grow them in space. It's to understand how biology interacts with this weird environment. And a lot of it is telling us how plants work. That it's a laboratory that you can't, the experiments you can do on the space station, most of them you can't do anywhere else. There's a very basic biology set of questions, which are the NASA questions. And that's just where you've always felt comfortable running your career and running your lab and, and directing your lab is at the basic level. <laughs> I think comfortable might not be. <laughs> 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 um, it's the it's the place where the the questions just naturally come. It, it wouldn't be a direct, natural, obvious thing, I think, for all of the people. Like, because the lab is a team, so it's not just me, and it's the postdocs and the scientists and the grad students and the un undergrads. The questions that naturally form for us are the basic questions of how does this work. Somehow, if it had an impact on improving crops, that would be awesome. But that is not why those questions come to our mind. So Simon, one of the things we really try and do on this podcast is give advice to young scientists, emerging scientists. If, if someone is coming up and they're trying to figure out their niche, how should they sort of evaluate this idea of whether they should try and think of things in an applied direction or go for very specific, you know, just I want to be answering this question and evaluating whether that's a good career choice. You know, if it gets to that point where you are going, what's my next step? And should I be at that point, you kind of know what floats your boat. You know whether are there a bunch of biological questions which you just find interesting or is increasing yield by 20%, that is a goal where I could see myself making an impact. If it's not fun and it's not interesting, but you feel you have to do it, you're probably not going to be good at it because you just can't invest that 
the time and the effort and the, that constant in the back of your mind swirling around ideas that is what science is all about. So I think only advice is just work out what floats your boat and run with it. And that you can get paid for, do it, for doing it. Well, it would be good to be being paid for it as yeah, well. Yeah, that was I guess where that I was going to go is like, okay, so if you yeah. are a person for whom basic plant science floats your boat, how can we, I mean, I really do see this message. The reason that we're all here doing plant science is to feed the world. Like that's been said to me directly. I've seen ASPB luminaries state this in their letters. No matter what we're studying, we're all here to feed the world. How can like basic biologists like make our point without being jerks. <laughs> Actually, we're not all here to do that. It's not that I don't care about hungry people, but like I don't really care about doing that in my own lab. I just care about figuring out why this one kind of protein works, right? Like how, how do we do that? <sighs> oh, that is tough. And maybe it circles all the way back to the beginning. So if audience needs a product, then basic research is going to support future products. But, you know, in a university setting, we are incredibly lucky to, if you have a university faculty position or work somehow in the university, kind of our job is increase the base of knowledge. So I don't think I have a really easy answer for that. Have you experienced those same kind yeah. of challenges to you? You mean, has someone gone, you know, our role as faculty in the botany department is to prove agriculture, that kind of undercurrent? Probably it happens more when you're at the junior status and people are challenging you. So this, this may even go back to Penn State yeah. when you were there. No, but... I don't think I've had that kind of push. Penn State is a biology department with an enormous breadth of research in it. And so it's fantastic place because everyone appreciates everyone else's stuff but there it's you know there are people who worked on infectious diseases and then there's people working on plant cell walls so i think that environment sort of pushes you to have to think outside the immediate product because you've got to somehow get into that that hugely broad area of research which a biology department encompasses same deal with the botany department in madison everyone from molecular evolution to you know how does the endoplasmic reticulum function i don't think there's been an obvious why aren't you breeding better plants <laughs> but that might just be you know that, that might just be because it's not what i'm gonna do and maybe people have realized that's not what i'm gonna do <laughs> Okay, so speaking of what you are going to do, you are on sabbatical right now at NASA. Yeah, I'm on sabbatical at Kennedy Space Center at the moment, and that's to actually ask a bunch of questions totally way out there about circadian rhythms and gravity. That's the research I'm doing down here. And then when we're here, we get access to play with some of the, the hardware to begin to work out how to do the next generation of space experiments. But again, they were driven by really basic questions about things like how does oxygen sensing impact on how plants work? And that turns out that when you go into space, how gases move is get screwed up and there's some really interesting questions there. So hopefully we won't run out of questions and yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's anything to worry about. <laughs>
I mean, I think this is true on both the applied and the basic side is that you have to have things that make you excited that you want to get up and do at least some other people (laughs) think are worthwhile. And so this idea of trying to find that that link it. So when you're advising students now, Simon, undergrads or graduate students, what kind of advice do you have for them and helping them shape that question? Because it's great to say, do what gets you excited. But I think it's hard enough for people with our experience to know, (laughs) you know, you get people who are like, I have this really great question. And and you're like, well, that's actually badly framed. And I know it's exciting to you, but you're not going to, I get a lot of undergrads, especially coming to talk about summer projects that they're very excited about a question that is really just not well grounded in reality. This is the hard bit of like the science career. It's a huge pyramid, irrespective of what kind of area you think you're going to end up with. When undergraduates yeah. first come in and do that thing of I'm interested in doing research, and you, if you work in the space sciences, the funnel is enormous because everyone gets super excited. You know, it's like, oh, we're going to put plants in space and things like that. You have to do that very basic thing. So the things that you like to do, do you like to clone genes or do you like to wander around in the field with a pair of, of Wellington boots on? You know, so there's some really big scale things that can sort of put you in the framework of thinking about what you really like to do. I don't know that I have really good advice. Anyone who's seen Simon's talk knows that he claims that all he does is drink coffee. Um, well, I am now because I'm on sabbatical. <laughs> yeah, sabbatical, yes. Um, I, all I do is drink coffee and I get out of the way of the people in the lab who are actually going to make progress, which is everyone else. Yeah, one of the good things about going on sabbatical is you can actually sit in a like a sterile hood and plant Arabidopsis seeds. Get back to the basics. <laughs> that's the basics, huh? <laughs> Putting Arabidopsis yeah. seeds onto petri plates. Yeah. yeah, that's what I did in grad school. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we always, you know, for the for the NASA guys, because everything we do at NASA, it's all Arabidopsis research. So it's all really basic stuff. We do transcriptomics and things like that, but it's not growing lettuce and thing you know the things which you like are the target crops for feeding the astronauts and we just go if all we need to do is get the astronauts to get a taste for arabidopsis and suddenly we would solve all (laughs) of these problems so didn't a chinese group just like germinate a rice uh, seed or or cotton on the on the moon on the dark side of the moon and then but then it died yes Well, I think that's a good place to end on the dark side of the moon. Killing off plants in the dark, sad, dead, cotton-germinated seeds, yeah. (laughs) I'll I'll have you know that was a great stride forward for humor. One small step for a cotton plant, one giant leap for cotton kind. Well, that was a great conversation, Simon. We really appreciate you coming on and sharing your insights with us. If people want to give uh, you feedback, how can they get in touch? Yeah, so either through my faculty email account or if you go to the Gilroy Lab Facebook page, uh, just contact us through there. All right. And Liz, how can people find you? You can find me at at eHaswell on Twitter. And you can find me at at Baxter Twee, that's T-W-I. Or you can find the podcast at at Taproot Podcast. And with that, thank you very much, Simon. Simon, we're so glad to contribute to your towering list of ways in which you've gotten your story out. (laughs) Thank you.
Taproot is brought to you by the American Society of Plant Biologists and the Plantae website. It is co-hosted and edited by Ivan Baxter and Liz Haswell and produced by Mary Williams and Melanie Binder. We get editing help from ASPB Conviron scholar Juniper Kiss and social media and blog post writing help from ASPB intern Katie Rogers. We are very excited to have Joe Stormer help us with the transcripts for season three. If you like this episode, tell your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes or in your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll bring you another story behind the science next week. <laughs>